Hi, this is Cassandra. And I'm Carmi. And this is Too, Too Good, Good to, to Be, be true. true. We are back. Yay! <laughs> Isn't everyone excited? Talking about another scumbag. <laughs> um, so this week we're talking about Mr. Lou Pearlman. Yes, the Lou Pearlman who, you know, started the Bashery Boys and sang all those boy bands of the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. So, some of you may or may not know, yeah, he was not a great person. <laughs> <laughs> to, to put it mildly. To put it mildly, he wasn't a great person. He's kind of not the best. Yeah. So, we'll just dive right into this. Um, he was born June 19th, 1954, Louis J. Perlman, in New York City, Queens, New York. He was born and raised there. He was the only child of Jewish parents, High and Rini Perlman. I feel like those names sound very, like... High? Just what you would think they would be hot like how's that spelled how's that? h-y oh oh i don't know all right so his father ran a dry cleaning business and his mother was a school lunchroom aide and he was well known for i guess just like any of these other people we have discussed for you know lying or telling grandiose stories you know just embellishing things or whatever and he was actually a first cousin of the musician art garfunkel so people didn't know this is an actual fact by the way but people didn't know whether to believe it or not because of the fact that he liked to tell stories as a child so um but then at one point he did show up at like a birthday party, like a bar mitzvah or something, and he sang oh. like a song, and people were like, "Oh, he actually wasn't lying about that." <laughs> you know what I mean? So he lived in Mitchell Garden Apartments across from the Flushing Airport, where he and his childhood friend Alan Grossman would watch blimps taking off and landing in the, you know. Airship area or whatever. I never really thought about where blimps take off and land. Like, I genuinely just never thought about that. Like, obviously they would have to (laughs) do that somewhere. Yeah, well, I mean, somewhere. And I I, I guess they use an airport just like, you know, anything else. And uh, he only really had that one childhood friend like he didn't really he wasn't really close with anyone else and they both had you know interest in aviation specifically blimps but like other forms of aviation as well and according to his autobiography bands brands and billions it was during this period that he used his position on the school newspaper to earn credentials and get his first ride in a blimp but this is disputed by Gross, the friend, who oh, claims... Oh, he's good to say. Who let him write an autobiography? He's a liar. Well, they did. <laughs> <laughs> it was like in 2002 or something. So, who claims he was the actual school reporter and allowed Pearlman to 
tag along. Mm. So, a little bit of, you know, dispute there. For there. That. I don't know, but... Anywho, Garfunkel's fame and wealth inspired Perlman's interest in the bu- music business. Can't even talk. <laughs> the music. The music business. The music <laughs> business. He managed a band as a teenager, but turned to his love of aviation after it proved unsuccessful. So, during his first year as a student at Queens College, Perlman wrote a business plan for a class project based on the idea of a helicopter taxi service in New York City. Interesting. Doesn't Uber do that? Don't they? They may now. Don't I really they? don't like, know. Because they have, like, regular Uber, fancy Uber, and then, like, rich Uber. <laughs> that might be a thing now, but I guess at this time people thought that was kind of weird. But um, by the late 1970s, he had launched business based on his business plan, starting with one helicopter, apparently. Um, he went on to persuade a German businessman, Theodore Wollenkemper, to train him on blimps and subsequently spent some time at Wollenkemper's facilities in West Germany learning about the airships. Okay. I mean, it apparently this happened. Your passion. Didn't, didn't Go say for it. it was a lie, so I'm assuming it actually happened. Then good old Perlman returned to the US after his little journey in Germany, and started his first business venture, which was called Airship Enterprises Limited, which leased a blimp to Jordash before actually owning one. So he didn't even have the blimp yet. And he's he already leasing also it. also didn't have the funds for said blimp. <laughs> <laughs> and he somehow got Jordash to sign a deal to lease one to use for advertisement. So then, once he signed the deal with them, he used the funds from Jordash to construct his own blimp, which promptly crashed when they went to use it. That's fantastic. So that happened. (laughs) This man is just not off to a good start. No, he's really not. So, the two parties later sued each other. I don't know what the outcome of that was because I never saw anything. But I do know that seven years later he was awarded $2.5 million because he had a um, he had taken out an um, insurance claim on the blimp. Oh. Oh. And I have heard rumor. Yeah, I was going to sp- That wonder. he had intentions of a crashing the whole time and just wanted to get the insurance get the money. insurance money oh yeah so he was um, awarded and, and that was a word from my cat everyone <laughs> <laughs> he was awarded 2.5 million in damages from that because of the insurance he held on it then on the advice of a friend Perlman started a new company They all have similar names. The first one was, what, Airship Enterprises Limited. Now it's Airship International. Taking it public to raise the three million he needed to purchase a blimp. Falsely claiming that he had a partnership with that guy from Germany, Wollenkamper. Mm -hmm. 
Doesn't anybody check anything? I guess not. You know, I don't know. I guess not. So, and the funny thing is, he leased the blimp to McDonald's for advertising. So clearly, he probably had falsified documents. I'm sure he did. Um, so they fell for it. He relocated Airship International to Orlando, Florida in July of 1991, where he signed two more people, MetLife and SeaWorld, as clients for his blimps. Hmm. Yeah. Big the blimp game. Take a guess what happens. Did he crash more blimps? He crashed more blimps! <laughs> this, so, this is great finding out about this, but like not having read anything <laughs> myself. <laughs> So, Airship International suffered when one of its clients left and three of the aircraft crashed. Three of them? Three. So, the company's stock, which had once been pumped up to $6 a share, dropped to a price of $0.03 cents a share, and the company was shut down. That's a big drop. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> By the early 2000s, though, he had enough of a profile to lure investors in his transcontinental airlines, which supposedly operated more than 49 planes. In fact, he owned none. (laughs) Even the company's brochure was a lie. It depicted one of Perlman's jets taking off, but the jet in the photo was actually a toy, like a model airplane. And his fingers were holding the tail of it, but were barely cropped out of the shot. We know this is true because good old Alan, his buddy from school days, said it was his, like, his model craft, and the and Perlman took it and put, like, stickers on it, <laughs> like, put, like, st- advertising stuff on it that said, you know, Transcontinental Airlines, which was, like, you know, his new business of the moment, and... He apparently printed these brochures and stuff to show people and get investors, but it was all <laughs> fake. Like, he went to the actual, like, airstrip and, like, held it up, like, <laughs> and somehow <laughs> made it look like it was actually flying. <laughs> I'm just picturing, it's, I'm picturing this adult man with, like, a <laughs> model plane, like, standing out on the airstrip, like... <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) He apparently was like a big kid. So, I mean, you know, sounds kind of like something he would do. (laughs) In going with his whole, you know, niche of still being kind of interested in music and boy band type thing or whatever, how he had managed a band when he was a teenager... He became fascinated with the success of New Kids on the Block. Oh, boy. He had got them, I guess, like, they had chartered one of his jets or something. (laughs) His fake jets. After he Um, actually got jets, or... He must have actually got something, I don't know, or maybe that never came to fruition, I don't know. But he he probably just leased it from somewhere. It probably actually wasn't his. Probably. he met them and saw the opportunities for money making through record tour and merch sales. He even has quoted in saying that he was in the wrong business because he realized like, 
how much money he could be making doing something like this. So that's when he started Transcontinental Records with the hopes of mimicking the boy band's success. And as we all know, his first band was the Backstreet Boys. Man, I, <laughs> dude, I was obsessed with them. Listen, like, it was honestly. I cringe thinking about the amount of knowledge that I had on those boys and the amount of time that I spent talking about them in sixth grade. Yeah. Like, sixth grade was my Backstreet Boys era, and, like, I just would not shut up about them. And, like, all my friends were probably like, Jesus Christ, we don't care when next birthday is. Same. I'm sure 99% of my friends I, and my family were annoyed with me because I was the same way. VHS tape of their, like, tour. Okay? And it had yeah. interviews and behind the scenes. And all the And things. it had concert footage. And, like, I would pop it in and watch it at least once a week. Yeah. I had a serious problem. My mom literally even bought me, like... CDs that were like overseas, like Europe only, or like stuff like <laughs> I had a serious problem. Like tracks that you couldn't get like, <laughs> here, Ver- other versions of their albums and stuff. I, I had a serious problem. <laughs> there was one point where they had a deal with Burger King. I don't know if y'all remember this, but like they made like little CDs, and I have like every single one of them. With only, like, maybe, like, three songs on them or something. Oh, jeez. Okay. Anywho. (laughs) Moving on. So, I just, real quick, in case you don't know who the Backstreet Boys are, I have their names here. Howie Duro, AJ McLean, Brian Luttrell, Nick Carter, and Kevin Richardson. They were then unknown, and he found them by a $3 million talent search that he had funded with, you know... Money from his blimps investors. <laughs> no, oh, also, do you remember? Quick sidebar. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Did you watch that? I have watched it in the past. There is an episode it. of Sabrina the Teenage Witch where she brews up a talent potion mm-hmm. and leaves it in the gym in her high school, and the Backstreet Boys drink it. And then they just start singing as long as you love me. I don't know that I... I had to have seen it, but I just don't remember. <laughs> it's one of my favorite I'm episodes. I'm sure that I've seen it, because I did watch the show. I just do not remember. <laughs> so, yeah. And that was about 1991, 1992 is when he um, discovered them and kind of put them together. In a way, the boys kind of put themselves together, sort of, because, I mean, some of them knew each other and whatever but then he hired johnny wright who was the former new kids on the block manager and his wife donna to manage them so they obviously have you know entertainment background or whatever this guy has zero (laughs) but you know how is he how does he have zero though like you would think with having garfunkel as, I don't know what, that they were, like, super close or anything. He was, like, his cousin or something. Yeah, I don't well, know like, they were, like, super you would close. think that he would kind of hit him up, you know? If you had somebody in the extended family that yeah, you'd think had that he, an end to what he wanted to do. Yeah, you'd think that if he wanted to do something, he would have... 
I don't know. I think he just, like, once he was doing his other things, because he was very much so interested in flight and all that. Once he was doing that stuff, I think he just saw the opportunity, like I said. Like, when he met up with New Kids on the Block, he saw that as, like, a money-making opportunity. He was like, hmm. Yeah, he seems like like one of those people with, like, that hyper-focused, almost almost like um addictive oh, personality yeah, where they get so. like they go balls to the wall I on think everything so. but literally also like from what i heard in some of the interviews and stuff like people said that his mind was like constantly going he was like one of those people like he was just con he did not like ever shut it off do you know what i mean like he was just go 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 you know what i mean so i think he just always was looking for opportunities and this kind of just you know, presented itself. Presented itself, and he just went with it. So, in the beginning, he was like friendly. You know, spend money on them, took them out to lavish meals. You know, he had this big mansion, and they would have sleepovers. I know, like, um, AJ McLean in the documentary I watched mentioned having him and Nick having a double birthday party there like where they invited like tons of people and just had a great time like he had all sorts of like Lou was like basically like a big kid and it was like he was living out like I guess like so was it like a Michael Jackson situation I don't think so but like I think he just kind of like he ne- well I, I, I guess you could say similar because I think he just didn't really have a childhood he didn't really have a lot of friends and so he was just kind of overcompensating looking, yeah I think he was overcompensating like even a lot of the people that were interviewed and stuff were saying like they feel like he just honestly was just looking for a family friends and stuff yeah. like a fit fa- like an extension of like you know himself like a family that's kind of sad i it mean not to excuse him being not to excuse scammer, any but... of his bad behavior but like honestly a lot of people said that like they thought he genuinely just was looking for connection connection with people well, i don't know so like he was basically like a f- and and seen as like a father figure to some of them most of them and and this part i thought was hilarious cuz i don't remember this but like apparently they called him big papa <laughs> and i was like excuse me what <laughs> I was like, for real? But no, they really did. Like, at first I read that and I thought, this has to be a joke. But no, I read it <laughs> in many articles. I mean, and they even mentioned it in the documentary. Can we really knock that? Because how many, like, dudes did we have that would come to the branch and we called them daddy? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's true. That's true. That is very true. PETA. PETA. Anyway, um. <laughs> so. Perlman began styling himself as this big papa, you know, a man in search of a family as much as he was in search of money. <laughs> he wanted to be a father figure to the groups he recruited, which he personally funded all of these auditions, I guess, but as we will find out with money that he stole from people, so. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. He also wanted to hang out with the the younger crowd, too, to indulge in his big kid tendencies. Like I said, like, he had all sorts of, like, he had, like, a game room and stuff in his house. Like, also, they said he had ski jet, like, what are those things? Like, ski jets or whatever? Jet ski. <laughs> jet ski. <laughs> oh, my God. That's kind of backwards. 
tired. <laughs> it's fine. It's it's good. We're Same having a, we're having a fun episode. We're having fun this time. <laughs> we're having a fun episode this time. We it's need fine. to have fun this time. Lighthearted. So, <laughs> oh gosh. So, Bastard Boys went on to achieve global success, became the best-selling boy band of all time, with record sales of 130 million, went gold, platinum, and diamond in 45 countries. Oh my god. So, on the tales of this success, he, along with Johnny and Donna, the managers, were introduced to Chris Kirkpatrick, who, if you are aware, is a member of NSYNC. (laughs) So, Chris had formed his own band of friends and people that were in the industry, because there's... The thing is, in Florida, there's a lot of, like, people who just, like, go there because they have talent and they just kind of use it as, like, a lot of them actually work at, like, Disney and stuff like that and do, like, the, um, be, like, the princesses and the princes and all that. Because it's, like, an easy way for them to kind of get exposure, get exposure, get something So, kind of, like, they utilized that at that point in time kind of the way nowadays they use like youtube and tiktok to kind of get out to kind of get their self out there yeah Yeah. a lot of people who are are like talented in like singing and dancing and stuff like that will go and do work at parks and stuff like that (laughs) so um yeah so that's how a lot of these people actually met each other was through connections having to do with stuff like that so they had already formed their band, but because, you know, good old Louie, <laughs> Lou Perlman had, you know, went in contact with them, he kind of said, oh, we'll take over, we'll manage you, and, you know, do the thing. Lou saw this as an opportunity once him and you know, Johnny and Donna were introduced to Chris Kirkpatrick as an opportunity to make more money, so they went on to fund and manage them as well. That band, you know, and sync. Five guys, same as the other band, J.C. Chazé, Lance Bass, Joey Fatone, and Justin Timberlake, and of course Chris, who we already mentioned, they went on to sell over 70 million records worldwide. Wait, because I already forgot Backstreet Boys uh, sales. Who, who, who did better? Um, Backstreet Boys. Okay. As honestly, from what I've read and what I've seen, they're the best-selling boy band of all time, period. Hmm. So, and he, had, like I said before, he had started them couple years prior to this. This was in 1995, and he started them in about 91, 92-ish, in that range somewhere. And this was in 1995. So, I don't know how I feel about this, because to me it's like a conflict of interest, but I get it, because it's like, obviously, it worked the first time, but it's like, they're going to be competing against each other, do you know Yeah, I thought that was kind of weird. Like, I mean, I guess that happens but it's I mean I don't know it seems weird to me I don't know anything about the music industry though but I would think that if you're representing one 
one band, you probably shouldn't represent a band that's going to be basically their competition. But at the same time, if it's just one record label, I guess, like, they can't distinguish, really. It's right. just whoever makes the cut. So, what, yeah. what, what exactly was he? Was his role, like, manager, agent, producer? Like, what technically he was he? Was technically, I guess, just, like... Fun funding them basically. Oh. oh, but he was he was managing also. Okay. So like he was taking management cut. Okay. All right. Well, then that just seems like we'll, a business. We'll kind adventure. of get we'll kind of get into this. It's just we're not quite there yet. But okay. We'll, we'll, we'll okay. Find out I'm sorry. What was going I'll, on. I'll, I'll shut up. <laughs> okay, no. We'll find out what was going on. Um. So. You know. These guys are doing more and more things. They never really in the beginning saw each other. From what I heard, they didn't see each other. And actually, he kind of tried to keep in sync, like, under the radar, like a secret at first to the other boy bands because, you know, he didn't He want... felt like he was cheating? <laughs> I don't know. I guess maybe he did. But they did eventually find out about each other. Um, in the documentary, you see the thing, this whole... Th- thing about how Backstreet Boys backed out of like some concert with Disney and it's funny because watching it I remember this but why they be- backed out because NSYNC was they be were there, just or? too busy oh and tired and just didn't have the time to do it so they said they didn't want to do it they kind of declined mm-hmm. they were just burnt out you right. know what I mean what so of course then NSYNC stepped in did that concert with Disney, mm-hmm. and that's when they started to like really blow oh, up they, because that yeah. basically promoted them more than what he was already doing with them. It kind of shot them. I can imagine a collab with Disney the... would shoot anybody up there. Oh, in the yeah. rankings. And that concert that they filmed was being shown on Disney, like on the regular. It was like in a regular rotation, they were showing it constantly. Disney, if you want to collab with us, hit us up. So, yeah. So, then they were kind of in the same ranks, doing a lot of the same things together. Then they kind of did know about each other, obviously, once they their success kind of shot up, too. And they did some sort of charity, like, basketball thing together or whatever. And they started talking amongst each other. Johnny overheard them, actually. Johnny Wright. They started talking about their deals, their contracts. Oh. (laughs) You know. This is when this sort of thing starts coming up. So, in December of 1998, suspicions arose from multiple members of both groups about being cheated out of money. So. So, did Perlman pull an HR? This is why we don't discuss our pay. (laughs) (laughs) Why we don't discuss our pay. You know what? That would be classic. But no, I don't think he even realized they had, but Johnny says in his interview that he did overhear them talking, like on the on a bus or a van or whatever they used to get them to that event, the, the basketball promotional, like, charity event thing. So, um, <laughs> what happens is the whole thing started, I guess, with... Lance being upset, and he had mentioned it to Brian of Backstreet Boys, Lance from NSYNC, 
had mentioned to Brian of Backstreet Boys about how um, they had this big, like, after their success shot up and Sync's success shot up, they had not been paid any money, really, for those three years. What? Three years. Three years? Yes, three years. How the hell were they, like, He gave them, like, an allowance. Oh, that's not... Okay. Okay. So according to this, it says <laughs> him and his bandmates were um, the members of NSYNC had to live on an allowance of thirty five dollars a day. Okay, but that's more than I live on, so they're True. doing okay. <laughs> so, um, but he took. Wait, what's the math on that? I'm gonna do the math. Do the math. I'm doing it. Uh, that's. Well, no, I lied. I do make more than that. I yeah, make a lot more a than lot. that. <laughs> Sounds like, like a lot bit, more. Anyway, wait, in case wait. anybody was wondering, that only comes to a little over a thousand a month. Wait till you hear their first paycheck because they were so excited, and Lou took them out to this big fancy dinner, invited their families, brought them all there at Lowry's or whatever it's called, some big fancy place that he liked to eat because he was very into like. Fancy meals, I guess. And uh, so he brought them there to give them their first check. And they were excited. I mean, they're young kids. They're excited. This is well, our I mean, first... yeah, when you're young, you get your first paycheck and it's like $42. And you're like, hell yeah, I'm rich. <laughs> well, apparently, you know, they were giddy with the process that they're about to become instant millionaires, you know. And then they're sitting there with their family members there, open these checks. They each got 10 grand. For three years? For three years of work. 10 grand. Oh, no. Um, I'd be fighting somebody. So that's, like, less than, like, minimum wage for a person for that's literally like a, a year. That's, like, of work. that's like part-time minimum wage. Right. I made more than that as a part-time worker at JCPenney. These people, and and when he, when he, you know, got them into their contracts and stuff, he told them all to quit their jobs, like their normal everyday jobs, like whoever was working at Disney, being a prince or whatever, quit doing that, quit doing this, quit doing your, like if you're working at a restaurant or whatever, quit doing your day jobs because you don't need to anymore. <laughs> Apparently they did need to. <laughs> or they just needed somebody who wasn't going to stiff them. No, yeah, that's what they really needed. So, yeah. So, obviously, this is when they start getting suspicious. They're really starting to, like, look into their contracts and break things down. And, you know, Lance Bass had a, I guess, a family friend who was a lawyer who looked into his stuff and was, like, literally, like, underlying all sorts of stuff, circling all sorts of stuff. Like, it was just not a good contract by any means. Yeah, so, I mean, like we said before, we were kind of going to interject some commentary on what's a red flag and what isn't and what to do in certain situations. So, people, if you, if you get offered a contract or something like Have this... Have a lawyer go over it first. Yes, I mean, don't mm-hmm. wait three years to get stiffed, and then not to not to victim blame. It's not their fault. They were young people. They were young, people, and, and this was new to them. And their thought it was exciting, too, and really wasn't. Right, right. So it, I'm not going to say these boys are, like, idiots or anything. Clearly they're not. They're all rich now. But 
Um, True. You know, if you get offered some kind of contract like this, take it to a lawyer immediately and have them check it over. I mean, yeah, you're going to have to pay a little bit for it, but in terms of a lawyer just checking over a contract and maybe telling you about some changes and whatever, it's not going to amount to a whole lot of hours. So, I mean, it's worth shelling out like 500 bucks to have a lawyer check this before you sign it because then you're guaranteeing yourself a better deal. Yeah. So he he had the family friend go over his, then he talked to Backstreet Boys, who then hired a lawyer to go over their contracts. And, like, literally, like I said, after three years of nonstop work and tens of millions of record sales, they were not expecting $10,000 checks. They were expecting more like 100000 at the least. Do you know what I mean? So... That was kind of a shock to them. And in comes the, you know, lawsuit time. (laughs) This is when all the, you know, people start getting their lawsuits out there. So what happened with NSYNC was they didn't have to go the lawsuit route because... When their stuff was looked over, there was a clause in their agreement that got them out of their contracts. Oh. So they were lucky in that sense that they could just walk away. Did you look into what the clause was? I have it. Okay. It says that, um, I'm trying to find it here, that it stipulated that Perlman had to sign the group to a U.S. label, but they were signed to... A German label. Oh. Under BMG. But it wasn't a U.S. label. It was a German label. And according to the documentary, it even said there was a time frame within he when he had to do so. Like, get them a U.S. label. Yeah, within so many months or years yeah. or whatever. I don't know what that was per se, because I don't remember. But I know that it was there was a certain time frame he had to do that within. And, and so he didn't. he didn't, so it declared it as null and void. Cool. Good. Which is good, good. for them. Yeah, good for them. <laughs> so the judge in the case, I guess, was like flabbergasted because Perlman's claim was that according to his contract and, and ownership of the band name, he was in sync. He was in sync and therefore entitled to 90% of their earnings. Sir, yeah, I, do, I know. Maybe we should just start doing video podcasts so you can just catch my facial expressions and then I'll explain I mean, yeah. everything that's going on in yeah. my mind. He tried to actually counter sue them, just so you know. And I think it was, I have it in my phone because it was in the documentary. I think it was for $150 million. Who the hell? You paid them, you paid them combined $50,000. So what? So what? Yeah. What did he think he was going to? I don't know. He makes like no sense. Anyway, she ruled for the band and, you know, this is when shit starts getting a little not so great. The shit hath hit the fan. (laughs) So, yeah. It's kind of crazy because you know what else happened? And I didn't see anything like in any of the articles about this. But they interviewed that lawyer that he was using to countersue them. Mm-hmm. He never paid that guy, and then that guy ended up suing him. How do you not pay a lawyer? Like, 
Like, that's the number one. Like, I'm if you're going to you. stiff somebody, don't stiff a lawyer. Because they, uh, uh hello, they kind of know the law. They're going to come for you. Yeah, and that guy said he had some choice words for him, but he wasn't really going to, you know. Well, that guy has more TV. restraint than I do. <laughs> he wasn't going <laughs> to say it on TV. So, yeah, that happened. So, the first actual lawsuit that he had to contend with was the members of Backstreet Boys. So, here's the thing with these contracts, and the NSYNC one was the same way. They were feeling that their contract was unfair, obviously, which, under their contract, Perlman was collecting monies as both manager and producer and was being paid as a sixth member of the Backstreet Boys. I.e. one-sixth of the band's own income. Not how management works. Yes. Lulu. So he did this with not only them but in sync. He was also being paid one-sixth member in their contract also. But the thing is, they didn't have to sue him to get out of their contract. So right, they had the clause. They didn't have to deal with this. So, but, and good for them. But these poor boys had to. So, yeah. In 1997, Perlman's work shifted from maintaining his opulent image to grasping for redemption after Brian Luttrell started the suit on him on behalf of the Backstreet Boys. Get him, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as you should, you know, because that's crazy. Because according to him... They had only received 300000 for all of their work, while Perlman and his record label were making millions. Yeah, that's absurd. It's, it's kind of insane. It's kind of insane. The band had vigorously toured, performed, and promoted themselves at Perlman's urging from 1993 to 1997, but were told that they had earned just two twelve thousand a piece. Like that's kind of what crazy. the fuck? Okay. Like I'm, I don't I don't There it is. There's my that. there's my main F bomb for this Yeah <laughs> for this like, episode. I just don't I don't get any I of it. I have a honestly. feeling it's gonna get crazier though, and I'm just gonna be like losing my mind. Well, and mean, <laughs> meanwhile, while all this is going on and his two largest groups were, were you know, trying to get out of their contracts or suing him. He is, you know, starting other bands and giving them shoddy contracts that they're not fully reading. Do you know what I mean? And the sad thing is all of this stuff is out there, I think, but these kids are just like, well, what? How, but it's a record contract. Right. Like how, first of all, there's the excitement of, they're oh my excited. gosh, I've been discovered. And then, ooh, I'm going to be a millionaire. Also, it's the 90s, like, and they're not just going to get on Google and, like, Google Lou Pearlman plus scam. Right. Like, I do that for everything. If I see, like, a new business, it's like, get this pretty top. I'm like, I like that top, but, and then I Google that business plus scam. Exactly. (laughs) That wasn't a thing they could do back then. They're just young people seeing what looks like a promising career, and they're being exploited for it. Yeah. So... 
The Lou that those other two groups knew, though, changed his tune after being questioned on these business matters and all this shit started going down and then they were like suing him and all that, you know. He wasn't as friendly. He was like cold to them and then started working on those other groups. So, I don't know. It's just, it's a lot. And, I mean, I didn't remember this before, but I guess, like, he was behind the band O-Town, created on the MTV reality show Making the Band. He also was behind LFO, another group Ew. called Take Five, a group called Natural. I don't remember any. I remember um, O-Town. Couldn't name a song, but I remember it. And I definitely remember LFO. Were they the ones that had that stupid Summer Girl yeah, song? Yeah, it's the Summer Girl song, okay. yeah. Hated that song, man. <laughs> That's a cheesy song. And then he had like two girl groups called one was called Solid Harmony and one's called Innocence. Okay. Yeah. Never heard of them. And those ones were co managed by Lynn Harless, who is the mother of good old JT Justin Timberlake. Aww. <laughs> She's the sweetest lady ever. They I like interviewed Justin. her. And she was, like, the sweetest lady ever. He's done some questionable things, but overall, I so, like him. He also had other artists signed under his label, like Aaron Carter, um, Nick's younger brother. Um, Jordan Knight from New Kids on the Block did, like, single albums under his label. In the end, what did Perlman in wasn't the lawsuits, though. Because they were always settled privately. Ew. Um, yeah. That is the scumbag way to go. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) It's true. It's true. And he did end up being sued in federal court for misrepresentation and fraud by almost every person he represented represented at some point. Um... Like, did they all do it together, or no, were these like separate all, lawsuits? No, it was all different lawsuits. There was only one group and one individual who did not sue him that I know of. Could you imagine being his attorney <laughs> and just being like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, his attorney must have been like Jim Carrey in Liar Liar and just been like, stop breaking the law, asshole! <laughs> yeah, because after... The Backstreet Boys did theirs. Aaron Carter, at the age of 14, filed a lawsuit in 2002 that accused Perlman and Transcontinental of cheating him out of hundreds of thousands of dollars and of racketeering and a deliberate pattern of criminal activity. Wait, wait, wait. Aaron was 14 when he did this? Mm-hmm. Dang. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think I even knew what racketeering was, meant at 14. He was super young when Perlman... St- he was always there because he was, like, there. With Nick. He was always there because he was was there. there. He was just there, you know, (laughs) chilling, hanging out, and he was young, and he, of course, you know, Lou being the person that he is, saw an opportunity and was like, you know what, you got some talent Here's a child I can exploit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, he did end up, like I said, settling all the lawsuits with all of them out of court. Um, I know that in the case of the Backstreet Boys, they... Paid him his one-sixth, whatever it is, that he said he was of the band and owed to him. And then after they did that, they cut all ties with him. Like, they paid him that, and then they were just I mean, better them than me, because I would have been petty as hell. Like, (laughs) if he had been claiming to be the sixth member of my band, 
I swear to God, there would have been so many posters made up with him in it. I know, right? As the sixth member, just to mess with it. Even the lady that did, that looked into, you know, and did the um, court proceedings for the NSYNC case and stuff, she had said, like, my daughter has posters of them and stuff on the wall. And And where are you? "Uh, Where are you? I don't see him. So that's why she was like, no. (laughs) Just no. So, the worst thing that Perlman did which is what ends up doing him in, is his bogus investments that he was getting from people in order to fund all of these boy bands and activities and all these things he was doing. So he had this bogus account that thing that he was like shuffling around and, you know, marketing out to... Mostly older, like, retirees, because I thought there's a lot of those in Florida. (laughs) Don't know if you know that, people, but, you know, a lot of older retirees in Florida. So, he had this bogus thing called Employee Investment Savings Account that was supposed to be an account which he said was for the benefit of those who worked for his transcontinental empire, And was like a catch-all for many of his almost 50 companies that he had invested in. So, like, he literally had all this money he was taking from these people. He was just throwing it at at all sorts of things to try to make more money so he could pay these investors Yeah, it just kind of seemed like he was throwing money and seeing what stuck. Yeah, exactly. So, he literally had, like, 50 companies under this transcontinental as a whole, you know, whatever. And they spanned entertainment, fashion, modeling, airlines, restaurants, and more. And he invited investors to join the plan, which he promised was backed by the FDIC, AIG, and Lloyd's of London. It, of course, wasn't. What? (laughs) (laughs) He forged insurance documents and financials you know, just like he did when he dreamed up this entire airline, whatever that whole So did he say was. Lloyd's of London was contributing monetarily, or were they his insurance? Don't know for sure. Oh, okay. I was going to say, they're like insurance. I think he probably was saying that they were there for insurance, so your money was like covered like it was good yeah because that would make sense i mean throwing in the fdic too which is yeah and i think that's why he mentioned all the all those things like the fdic and stuff because he was saying like oh your money is it's good you know it's covered it's yeah i don't know that the fdic uh backs investments into private companies well apparently that's what he was telling people so i don't know so sort of I'll give you a brief thing of what happened. One of these companies that he had invested in was like a talent agent. It says it's a talent scouting agency in my notes here, but it was like a talent agent company. Okay. This place was already being investigated because it was seen as a shoddy business, and he invested in it. So they were already being investigated. Mm. What was that company? Do you know? It's called... Options Talent Group 
or formerly E-Model and Studio 58. So it went, it's according to this, it says it would subsequently go through several name changes, including being changed to Transcontinental Talent. Hmm. And Wilhelmina Talent Scouting, which I don't know if you've heard of them, but, like, I've heard of that, like, on fashion shows and stuff. So, I don't know if they were just using that name, because Wilhelmina is an actual, like, scouting... Like, like a it's legit. a legit <laughs> scouting agency that they use in the modeling industry, but I guess they kind of took that name and kind of attached it to whatever they were doing. Hmm. So... Once he purchased into this company and the Better Business Bureau had very negative thoughts about this company already and they were already investigating this company, it kind of drew more attention onto Lou and his business things and what he was doing. Aww, so it kind Lou. of was his undoing, per se. So, and... When he invested in this was in September of 2002. So, according to this, by June of 2004, a civil suit for defamation against some people who had criticized this talent business was filed. The case was dismissed and closed in 2006. Apparently. I don't know. And by that time, it was un- known under the name of Fashion Rock LLC. So, like, this thing changed, like, a bazillion times. <laughs> like, I don't know. So. Those talent agencies are just sketchy. Like, uh, just all of them in general. Like, I'm sure that there, obviously there's ones that are legit, because otherwise we wouldn't have actors and models <laughs> and stuff that have agents. Well, it's and, funny because. Well, like, they're so weird about everything. Like, that, um, there's that one that I used to scout at the mall all the time. Oh, I do recall that, but I don't remember what it's called. I know what it's called, but I'm hesitant to say it because I don't want anybody to hear it and think that we're, you know, slandering them. I do honestly think that a lot of those are never legit companies. They're not. You have to really do your research before you're going to get into something A lot of times what they are doing is they're they're, scouting you, and I'm air quoting that because you can't see me. Right. Um... They're scouting you to get you signed to this contract to use them as, like, your agent. And you have to pay, like, dues to be a part of that agency. And then, yes, they do send you on what they call a go-see. Right. And I know this because, well, first of all, they hounded the hell out of me uh, when I was working at JC, when we were both working at JCPenney. Yeah. Anytime I would eat, um, like, an Auntie Anne's pretzel, these little fuckers would be, like, in the food court trying to ask me to sign with them. And I was always like, no, I don't like having my picture taken, and that's not going to change. No. But um, my friend that you know, um, my gay friend that you know... he was a model. I knew what you meant. <laughs> not, not through that agency, I don't think. But he was a model, and they would send him on what they called a go-see. Yeah. To go see. 
You know, they would go and like model, and it would be just like a shitload of models going and, and doing modeling what stuff. They're looking for. Yeah, yeah, and they would pick from like they'd do callbacks, kind of like with acting auditions. And I've stuff. seen that on so America's like, Next Top Model. They're yeah. legit in terms of yeah, they're gonna send you to those, but you're not guaranteed you're a not job. You're not guaranteed you, to book anything, right? Yeah. And in the meantime, you're paying. They're them. taking all your money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I see just kind of think saying. it's all a racket all around. Right. And I do see what you're saying. Unless you happen to be either super talented or privileged and already have one foot in the door and you're going to definitely get jobs. Most of it's just they're going to take your money and you're not going to get anything out of it. Hmm. But, I, and, but what I also don't understand here is that it then says, okay, after it says it was closed... Oh, they're just saying the suit was closed, dismissed and closed. That that business lived on until February of 2007 when its assets were sold in Perlman's bankruptcy proceeding, which we'll get to later. But, like, okay, so, like, even though it was being investigated in 2006, it still lived on for, like, another bit of time. In 2006, investigators discovered Perlman had perpetrated the longest-running Ponzi scheme in American history and had defrauded investors out of more than $1 billion. Okay, so that's the part that I did actually read. And I saw that he had defrauded these investors out of this billion dollars, and $300 million of it is still, still missing? missing? Yep, it says out of which $300 million is still missing. He did this for more than 20 years. He had enticed individuals and banks to invest in transcontinental airlines, transcon records, just, they're, they're both parent companies or, you know, transcon international. All of it was like all built into one. They were all fictitious and only existed on paper, truly. Mm-hmm. And... At least until he started doing the boy bands, he wasn't even really doing legit business and getting any income. Do you know what I mean? Until he started these boy bands. And then Transcon was profiting from the signed acts. But before that, there was nothing. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so after the success of those groups, he would use them to further... His Ponzi scheme by mm-hmm. using them yeah, like, as look, leverage. This is successful. Yeah, this as leverage money. to get people to invest in his said companies. <laughs> so, isn't he lovely? And he's delightful. He used falsified Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation AIG and Lloyd's of London documents. So he did use falsified documents, which is what I thought mm-hmm. it said. To win investors' confidence in his program entitled Employment Investment Savings Account, which I talked about before, briefly. And he used... This is the part that kills me. is like he literally used fake financial statements created by a fictitious accounting firm that he also made <laughs> called Cohen and Siegel to secure his bank loans. And I'm sure back then it was so a little he used easier this to do that. Fake because... accounting firm that he made up mm-hmm. and would send fictitious financial statements to banks in order to secure loans. I'm like, this guy just had it all figured out. You know? 
Like, I, like this is, when I hear about this, it genuinely makes me want to, like, have some conversations with the underwriters that I know. And mm-hmm. be like, how, how far, does this even, how far yeah. do you really go in looking into this stuff? Because I know, okay, so as discussed previously in episodes, you know, I work in loan operations. And so when I book a loan, mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff comes through with the loan packet. Like it's right. the initial application for the loan, the approval documents. If it's a business loan, I get a business loan presentation that basically is like, this is the purpose of the loan. This is why we want it. These are our assets. This is how much worth we have. Um, This is how much we can afford to pay back, that kind of stuff. And then there are bank statements and tax documents and Mm, everything that comes into it because the underwriters like really dig deep to make sure Okay, you definitely can they pay definitely back this five million dollar loan. Money. Yeah. You know, so I just wonder: do they? I mean, do they take it at face value, or do they actually contact the banks? Because I don't know. Like a lot of them, I get they bank with my bank, so obviously we don't have to dig right. that deep. Like if they, we can just print the statements ourselves. But if they're banking with, say, like. Um, M&T or something, and they give us M&T statements, I'm just curious. Like, From, I'm going to have to have a conversation oh, yeah. with some of I these underwriters and see what they're really doing in terms of that part of the process. From what I understand, because um, I did see some information about this, and it even referenced, like, you know, other people that we talked about who did defraud... Um, to get loans like um, yeah. Anna Dalvey. Um, according to what I saw, it takes a lot. Like, you have to be very skilled and very good at what you're doing in order to defraud these banks. Like, it's a lot harder to do the loan defrauding than it is to do individual people, obviously. <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Right, right. And you I'm have to, sure it's... it's... That's something that is not... It's very rare that people will do that as opposed to defrauding individual people. Right. I mean, I'm sure it's a lot harder now that we have. Oh, for you sure. You know, the electronic sure. communication that we have. But in the 90s, I just, I don't know. I don't know how much they, they really could doing... confirm or verify yeah. anything. They were just like, okay, cool. Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's truly sad because according to this, um, he had done this to even like major banks such as Bank of America, Washington Mutual, Mercantile Bank, and others, which I never heard of that one, but like these weren't even like, but this wasn't like small town, you know. They're like, like national like banks. Yeah. Banks, you know not, what I mean? They're not like community banks, they're national banks. Right. So I don't know. And he promised that this investment would yield higher returns than traditional investments. And as I spoke of before, he attracted many retirees. Um, Once he started the bands, he would use their success as a way to convince them to invest their hard-earned money into his other businesses, which were all housed within the corporation of Transcontinental. And he would claim, you know, that his empire included all those things, you know, all the things that he 
had invested his money into that didn't actually exist, like an airline. And I mean, he did have a talent agency for a bit, so that was true. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he. It's just crazy, honestly. He promised securities and high returns on the investments. However, all the companies were fictitious, as we know, and they were just there to sell the lie. It's kind of crazy because he created a fake airline, a fake German bank, and (laughs) a fake Florida accounting firm. All of this just to convince people to invest. It's just, it's so crazy to me because it's like... If you put that amount of effort and drive into a legitimate business, you could probably be successful. And that's the thing with all these people. Had they done that, they could have. But they don't. It's it's really sad because, like they said, instead of this being actual business, it was all Ponzi schemes. Because he was raising money from the later investors to pay the earlier investors. And it didn't work out for him, you know what I mean? He he was spending too much. He was kind of doing the same thing, I mean, more or less, that Billy McFarlane, and throwback to, to our it. Fire Festival episode. Yeah. He was basically just taking money from Peter to pay Paul. Exactly. And, like, trying to make it up as he went. As he went. And kind of trying to make ends meet. And it kind of didn't work out in his favor, obviously. As we see. You know. It's kind of crazy. It's, it's as they call it here, an elaborate network of fake finances. Which is exactly what he did. pretty accurate, yeah. I mean, it's pretty accurate. He... This, what's really weird is, like, you know how we were talking about the fake accounting firm? Mm-hmm. He hired an answering service to pose. As the firm. As the firm. So they were, like, answering phone calls and pretending And those to poor be, people, they probably weren't even pretending. They probably thought this was a real business. They were like, hey, I'm working for an answering service for an accounting firm. Because <laughs> yeah. those exist. I yeah. mean, as a, as a young adult, I worked at a call center. And we did have different sections for, like, different businesses. Right. Like, I worked for one, um, I worked for one, it was, like, what the hell was it, service? Not service electric, service? Service something, I don't service know. Service first? So, no, it was, it was, no. A, it was an HVAC company, heating, oh, ventilation, air conditioning, but it was service something. I worked for them, and what we did was, like, schedule tune-ups, um, schedule uh, whatever they're called technicians to go out and um like Like fix things yeah not only maintenance but like fix if anything broke but then there were other sections of the call center that actually were banking call centers oh yeah and like credit card call centers and stuff there was one and i can't remember i can't remember all of it but it started with a g it was like an it was just letters it was g something Okay. And it was, like, it was basically, like, banking for, like, the ritzy folk, you know? Like, mm-hmm. it was just old ladies calling in all the time to move, you know, $500,000 from here to there. So it's, like, he probably did something like that. It was, um, I worked back in the day, it was called ICT, and now it's called Sykes. Oh, yeah, yeah, or yeah. Whatever. My sister worked there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bit. I worked there when it was ICT. 
And so they probably worked at something like that because, like, that's they all. They were probably the, just thinking, like, that that's oh, what this they is what for. we're doing now at this right. point. Right. They had different, changing. they called them different campaigns yeah. is what they called them. So whatever campaign you worked for is And those poor business. people were being duped. They didn't know. Yeah, they probably yeah. didn't know. I mean, <laughs> I can't say know. for sure that that's what he was doing. They probably did likely. They probably Most likely didn't they didn't know. Like, a lot of times where you see somebody has kind of outsourced their scam people think that the people that it's outsourced to are complicit and a lot of times they don't know either yeah it's crazy because he had been doing this since 1981 so like i said more than 20 years and the only time when he was making legitimate money was with these bands and he was basically stealing right from them and he could have just not, <laughs> you know what i mean could have just not done that he could have just not given done them that. fair deals and he still would have made a lot of money right and he could have probably at some point recouped if he had not made try tried to double dip and all that double and triple dip he could have actually had legitimate businesses going and then been able to pay all these people back yeah. At some point. But, you know, that's not what happened. That's, so. not, that's not the way that's he decided to go. That's not the way it went. So, you know, oh, well. <laughs> so, um, yeah. After 1999, Transcontinental ceased to exist at all. And as we know, prior to that, it was only really existing on paper anyway. So. Right. Whatever. <laughs> That's what they found through their investigation. It like it was only existing on paper, but then after nineteen ninety nine, it literally didn't exist at all. It was just all a ruse, I guess you could say, or right. whatever. So it says he accepted one hundred eighteen million dollars in investments into this account, this employee savings account. Wow! Between January two thousand three and December two thousand six. He returned roughly $43 million to investors, but distributed more than $38 million to himself. Oh, isn't that nice of him In an entity him. he called Perlman Enterprises. <laughs> I know, isn't that nice? <laughs> like a little gift to me from me. Yeah. <laughs> and at the time of this investigation, it says he had owed investors $96 million, but only had less than 15000 in his bank account. In his legitimate bank account, yeah. how much do you think he wired, wired over to that, his, his other that's, account? That's what they talked about in the documentary. The fact that there's that 300000 that's missing that nobody knows million. what it is. Or $300 million, I'm sorry. Three, I misspoke. <laughs> $300 million that is missing still to this day that they It is probably know. in like shell it's bank probably accounts. probably somewhere that no one knows. And he can't tell anybody because well of course not because then he would lose it well we'll find out why he can't tell anybody (laughs) we're not there yet so he fled the united states in early 2007 after all this went down and he admitted in agreements to providing fake tax returns to banks and creating a fake branch of a bank in Germany to try to lend credibility to himself, which is, that's in, in that's even worse. Like, he created a fake bank. <laughs> I don't even know with this guy, honestly. So, 
In February of 2007, Florida regulators announced that Perlman's transcontinental savings program was indeed a massive fraud, and the state took possession of the company. Most of the $95 million was collected that was collected from investors was gone. Just gone. Like, what did he do with it? Like, $95 million? I don't know. And he apparently had two associates, but they barely mentioned them. So, like, the judge ordered him and his two associates, Robert Fischetti and Michael Crudell, to bring back to the United States any assets they had taken abroad, which were derived from illegal transactions. A.K.A. the $300 million he has. Stashed somewhere, I don't yeah. know. So... Perman was eventually arrested in Indonesia on June 14, 2007, after he had fled the U.S., like I said. He was spotted by a tourist couple from Germany. (laughs) Could you imagine just being, like, in Indonesia on vacation, and you're like, I, I, that's that guy. Babe, is that Luke Roman? (laughs) That's the guy. That's the boy band guy. So... Anywho, they found him in Ger- well, not in Germany. The German couple found him in Indonesia, spotted him, and they came to arrest him because they were looking for him. And at the time, he was apparently trying to create a seal and other documents to make that said German bank appear legitimate. <laughs> Dude, just stop. Give it up already, you know? <laughs> I don't know. He was then indicted by a federal grand jury on June 27th of 2007. Okay. And he was charged with three counts of bank fraud, one count of mail fraud, and one count of wire fraud. One count each. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I don't even know how that's even possible, considering the massive amounts of stuff he damage did. he did. Yeah. So, I don't even know. Want to hear something funny? Of course, I always do. <laughs> the This is, you know, when the conviction and the sentencing starts. Not even a day in court could keep Perlman from scheming because five days before his sentencing in May 2008, Perlman requested a telephone and internet connection for two days a week so he could continue to manage his current band of the hour called US5 or US5. I don't know. I'd never heard of them before. So that he could earn back the money that he had bilked. Why do they always do that? Why do they always still try to do shady shit while they're, like, on trial or on probation or on, uh, they've, they've been released on bond? Like, I was like, you have to be kidding me. Because, like, like oh, Billy did that. let me do this so that I can make back this money. Right, like, Billy McFarland did that and they released him on bail. Dumbass committed more crimes. Anna Delvey. Exactly. Like, why, why, why just stop? They're just not smart, you know? How many times did What's-Her-Face Dorothy get arrested and then they let yeah, her back out? They the were world? like, hey, Dorothea, stop Dorothea, being yeah. around old people and stop messing with their social security. And she was like, you know what? No, no I'm going to keep doing that, keep actually. Do- they legit told her, don't do this. And they're, she's like, you know what? I think I will. <laughs> you know what? Actually, I didn't hear that. So I'm going to. Yeah. So, I guess good old Lou Perlman is the same as anybody else that's 
the, trying to I mean, defraud the, people. There's obviously something there. They lack that. They lack the stop button. I don't know. Just stop honestly. themselves. They. I just don't think that they think about it. They're just like, you know what? I got to do this. Like they got to keep going. <laughs> you know, I I can't stop. I have no time to stop. So the judge obviously was like. No, 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 no. <laughs> Judge G. Ken No Sharp of the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Florida rejected the request, obviously. Well, course. good. I mean, could you imagine? I would just laugh. I would laugh him straight out of court. <laughs> just be like, no, get the fuck out. Are you kidding me? So on May 21st, 2008, Sharp sentenced Perlman to 25 years in prison on charges of conspiracy, money laundering, and making false statements during a bankruptcy proceeding. Oh, what a sad, really sad moment. Honestly. I'm, seriously, I'm shocked and saddened. And what happened to him after that? You just wait. <laughs> <laughs> they told Perlman he could reduce his prison time by one month for every million dollars he helped a bankruptcy trustee recover. <laughs> All right. He also ordered individual investors to be paid before institutions, which that makes sense. That's fair. Well, yeah, because like the banks can write it off as a yeah. loss, and people kind of can't. I mean, maybe they can, but they still need the I money. I mean, I feel like that's fair. So, good old Louis Perlman. In 2008, began his prison sentence with a projected release date of March 24th, 2029. However, he suffered a stroke in 2010 while incarcerated. He was diagnosed with an infection of a heart valve. He had surgery to replace the heart valve a few weeks later. Mm -hmm. And then the prison took him to the hospital where he was scheduled for another surgery. And he ultimately died while in custody at the Federal Correction Institute in Miami, Florida on August 19th, 2016. Now, I saw differing things. Like, they said it was from cardiac arrest Mm -hmm. in one article, but then other people said that it was, I think they assumed that what it was, that's what it was, but then somebody, I read later in other articles that it was actually an infection from the surgery, the valve surgery. Uh, it could have been. I mean, you you kind of risk that anytime you go for surgery, even a minor surgery, you risk um, sepsis, which mm-hmm. if any of you don't know, sepsis is an infection of your blood. And then there's, there's millions of things that can cause that. There's so many things that can point to it. Like um, my ex-mother-in-law, that's actually what she passed away from. Um, my ex-fiance's mom, mm-hmm. she passed away from sepsis. Um, from crazily enough no oh it was an infected tooth tooth i i think i do remember you telling me that Mm -hmm. that's why you should not ignore anything like that that happens to you people yeah people tend to be like oh i'm fine i'm fine i'm fine and then they don't go you're not fine you're not fine go go to the doctor go to the doctor (laughs) (laughs) so he was Buried 10 days later on August 29th, 2016, in his family burial area. He was 62 years of age. So. So he died pretty young. I mean, 62 is not really that old. In, in, I true mean, indeed. But not in today's To be world. fair, he did not eat the healthiest from what I understand. I mean, he was a bigger guy. And he liked to indulge in the finer things. And he liked to eat. At fancy restaurants and things. and all Is he those. related to Rita Perlman? 
No, I don't believe okay. so. I was I was curious about that when I saw the last name. I was I didn't know if they had any relation. So I do have a little bit of a um interesting tidbit. A factoid if you I will. have some you know they interviewed this lady, um, Tammy Hilton, who was a nurse who took care of him in nineteen ninety six. Mm-hmm. when he had a cyst on his liver that ruptured and almost cost him his life all the way back then. So Ooh, that sounds awful. Um, they had done an interview with her, and I have some stuff from that. Okay. Just give us a little closer look at him and his inner workings and his mind and everything. It says, he was able to make people think they were the most important people in the world, but he didn't have it in him to connect deeply. I mean, that makes sense because he really didn't seem to have the family connections and friendships. And that's where yeah. you learn how to it's do like that. It's like he lacked in that area. It's like he was trying. But he didn't really know how to do really it. he didn't really know how to do it. So, it makes sense. She said she remained close to him for the, for the longest, even though she said she quit believing anything he said a long time ago. Yet, she was friends with him for probably the longest of anybody that he knew. And she said others were still enamored. He had anybody that he could put, he could, putting money in his commissary account. Now, this was, like, obviously before he was deceased. Yeah, I mean, and some people just have that. Some people really just have a natural charisma about them that even though they've done these things, they can still kind of win you over. Right. She said he cried, she recalls. He didn't want to talk about it. It was always, I can't die, I have things to do. The last time she talked to him on the phone was right after his stroke in 2010. She's like, he was afraid, he says. But he flipped and turned right into, I'm not going to die. If he died, he would never get to pay anyone back. He would never get to be bigger than he was. So, basically, like any of these other people, to his dying day, he was like... He just wanted to be famous. He just wanted... And rich. To be rich and famous, and he still had this thought in his head that he would be able to do that and achieve that goal. And like he didn't... He, like he it didn't didn't say things like he was going to come back. Yeah, it didn't seem like he wanted to right his wrongs solely to, ro- to right his wrongs. He wanted to right his wrongs so that those people wouldn't say bad things, things about, about him, him so and he, he could still bad. be... This is big, famous, rich producer, music guy. Right. And what's sad is, while the artists that he ripped off are upset, and there's they lost all their hope of financial recovery because it died with him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They a lot of them still credit him with discovering them, and. You know, they owe, They say they owe their careers to him. Like, a lot of them, when they're interviewed, they're like, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be where I, I am. Mean, and that's true. And that's the thing. It's these. There can be multiple truths at the same time. Right. He can be the catalyst that started your career. And at the same time, it can be true that he defrauded you. Exactly. So, like, they're... They... It's it's a very confusing... When all the people they interviewed from actual boy bands were all very, like... It's like they still loved him in some way, but then, like... Like, they, they really were conflicted. Didn't. It was very conflicted. All, every single person that they interviewed felt very conflicted. You could tell that they felt very conflicted. So... 
as I was saying, this Hilton lady says that to her, the worst part is the less fortunate investors whose life savings he stole, which that's fair to say. Mm-hmm. And to say that Lou Perman was the most selfish person in the world is harsh, she says, but it's true. So, and this is coming from somebody who knew him. And was close to and him. And was close to him. Well, as close as you can be. As close as you could be to him, honestly. Because it seems like he was kind of shut off. Right. Nobody really knows anything about him or his... Right, and, and this whole thing... Or his home life. That's what I was going to say. All of this talking thing. has been about his businesses and his fraud, and none of it has been his personal... Well, and I didn't like, want to bring it up, but there was a lot of accusations against him, kind of like Michael Jackson, like you oh. were saying. And since that's not really what we're supposed to be talking about, I wasn't going to bring it up. Right. But there were, like, a lot of those through the years, and... But then there was also a lot of people that were like, no, he never, he, he would, would never, never yeah. he never t- did anything out of care, like anything that was right. And I mean, even remotely offensive to me, you know? So it's like, who's to say? I'm not going to say and no one, it was and true no or one, wasn't because yeah, no one say, knows. And, and nobody would know the truth other no than knows. the people that were actually there. That's the thing. No one knows. And it's weird because he never really had, he never made a family of his own. He never dated anyone he never got married he never do you know what i mean so nobody really knows because he didn't really talk about it as far as like accusations of that nature go i mean there's always as they say there's three sides you know his side their side and the truth truth. so in closing i want to say do to the massive ponzi scheme that he pulled off lou has often been compared to the infamous bernie madoff oh However, he stated it is an unfair comparison because he was just a scamster. I don't think it was right what he did. But I had my way to make it all right. I just didn't have my chance to do it. That's what, like, with these people like him and like Anna and like Billy, who are kind of subscribing to the fake it till you make it. Make it. it. And Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Holmes, like our last episode, you know... You have to think, did they intentionally set out to scam people, knowing it was a scam, knowing it was wrong, knowing that they're stealing, or did these people actually have good intentions of doing the right thing and lost their way and they just didn't know how to do it and they got in over their the head heads. and had to start making stuff up and the that's what i will never really that's know. what i wonder every time and even like the people that he did this to i think have those same thoughts in their head you know what i mean they're like who was the real Lou Perlman was he really that good guy who wanted to be a father figure to us did he have good intentions and he just didn't know how to pull or, it off or was he was a scammer he a all scammer along and fraudster from the beginning from the get-go right. we'll never know but but it, either way whatever the intentions were like they said right you know the road to hell is paved with good intentions it doesn't matter it doesn't what matter. his intentions were what matters is what actually is happened. What happened and so it's funny because he said he just didn't have the chance to do it. So how did he plan? (laughs) This is the funniest part. How did he plan on making it right with all his victims? Well, he wanted to fall back on the magic of making a new boy band to pay off the investors. No! 
Lou said, I think I could have. If I was given a chance to put another band together, that would have paid everybody back. But I never had that opportunity, and that was very upsetting. Lou, why don't you just take some singing lessons and start the boy band yourself? <laughs> I know, right? Honestly. Could have been Lou and the boys. <laughs> it could have been. I mean, it's almost like he wanted to be. And I know when they interviewed um, Justin Timberlake's mom, she said that he, she thinks he genuinely felt like he was a part of the group. Do you know what I mean? And maybe that's why he included himself as one six maybe member. i mean I maybe what whatever happened he, with him she said it seemed like he genuinely like felt like he was part of it and he was in it and he was experiencing yeah. it with them and like you know well, whatever it's not like he was doing the actual work because he wasn't but maybe in his in his desire to be accepted and to have that connection right he put things in his head that weren't really there like i'm still no matter how awful somebody is, no matter what they do, I'm still hesitant to believe that they set right. out with nothing but malicious intentions. I I'm just always conflicted wonder, with that, too. It's like I, I wonder... I wonder if he was just that eager and that desperate for connection, and he really did see it that way. And right. I am not in any way excusing any of the things that he has done. Oh, no. Because you know right from wrong, and you know right. when you're lying, and you know when you're telling the truth. As I mean, as long as you don't have some kind of mental illness that keeps you from exactly. knowing the, the difference. But, but I mean, I just, I have to wonder, like, was this yeah. all just misguided longing? Yeah. Or was this an intentional scam set up? I agree. I, I have those same thoughts. I'm like, did he really set out to scam people from the beginning? Or he just wanted to do something and be a part of something yeah maybe he just wanted and, to be great yeah i don't know do you know what i mean yeah only only he, only knows he knows what his real intentions so were. Know. but again intentions but don't really matter in in end game sad. it's just and who you hurt in the process you know what i read in one of the articles and i i couldn't i couldn't find it so i couldn't like go back and like read the details but like something about him starting a choir while he was in jail also <laughs> buddy know when to stop just know when to stop he, just, he didn't know when to give it up he was just trying to make friends i don't know yeah and, and something i think also along the lines of he wanted to st- oh yeah you know what's another thing i saw he wanted to start a uh um Prison band? No, no. No, he wanted to have like a, you know how like reality TV was like a big thing then? He wanted to have like a, like a reality TV thing from the prison. (laughs) Like a TV show. (laughs) He's always looking for business opportunities. Oh, Lulu. I don't know. Oh no. <laughs> Anyways, um, <laughs> um if it seems too good to be, to be true, true, it is. So as always, guys, you can find us on Facebook at Too Good to Be True Podcast and on Instagram at Too Good to Be True Pod. We also have an email where you can submit suggestions 
for things you'd like us to cover. That can include cases or just a certain type of scam in general. You can ask us questions. You can send us listener stories. Anything that you want to tell us, just send us an email at toogoodtobetruepod at outlook.com. You can also DM or message us on our socials and we will get back to you. And thanks for listening. Sore from, sore from your fall. fall. Literally, it was like in the movies where you go like that and your feet just... <laughs> oh, my oh my god. That reminds me of one time. I gotta, I'm going to have to act it out because it's too ridiculous. <laughs> so my mom... I, I was probably like maybe 14 at this... <laughs> I don't know what just happened. I don't... I don't even know how... Is she seeing things? I don't know what No, was. I stepped on her, but I, I don't know either. how. Like, she must I didn't have look moved like you right when I took to her. Yeah, she must have, because it didn't look like you were that close to her. I wasn't, and I put my foot down, and there and she, she was. was like, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, I was like 14. My feet are hot. And my mom was making spaghetti, so she's like by the oven, and she's just stirring, you know, the spaghetti. And for whatever reason, the topic of kicking her in the face came up. And I was like, I'm going to kick you in the face. And she's like, <laughs> she's like, try it. And I was like, I bet I could. And she's like, okay. So I went to do one of these numbers yeah. and just show her that I could get to that facial high? height. Yeah. And I was wearing socks on linoleum. Oh, God. So my ass flew in the air. I spun like a dolphin. And then just landed on the ground. Oh my god. <laughs> as soon as I hit the ground, she just stops stirring the spaghetti and she looks at me and goes, You okay? 